Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. This morning, <laughs> again, we're at Christmas time, and I think uh, as we're walking through Revelation, this is heavy stuff, and I get it. Uh, sometimes I'm reading through this, and I'm thinking, Lord, um, man, I, I re- believe uh, that pretty much everybody believes the rapture is taking place by this time. Uh, if you don't, you are blessed to go through this, and uh, I'm just glad that we have the privilege of knowing the Lord, but we are a little bit sobered, I would hope, to recognize that people who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if this takes place over the next period of time, very well may be going through this seven-year period of time, and particularly the end of it, these bowls that are being poured out are devastating, Right? So in chapter 16, and I'm just going to bring you up to speed because chapter 16 through 19 is quite a picture. Uh, and you've got several different things taking place here. In chapter 16, the sixth bowl, the Euphrates River, is dried up. And that allows Babylon, uh, the Antichrist, to bring his armies to Jerusalem. And we've got a map uh, that we can throw up there. And it just shows kind of an idea. When we talk about Armageddon, a lot of people have thought of Armageddon as the battle. And Armageddon's actually not the battle. Armageddon is the place where the forces of the enemy gather in order to do battle. And there's a campaign because there's actually several different battles that begin to take place. Uh, The forces from Babylon come over to Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, which is what it's called. And from there, they go down to Jerusalem. From there, they go down probably uh, to Basra or Petra in that particular area to attack the Jews. They come back to Jerusalem, and it's when they come back to Jerusalem that in chapter 19, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ returns and literally puts an end to it. Uh, It's the final moment here, at least in terms of the seven-year period of time, the tribulation, uh, the 70th week of Daniel, as we would call it. So Armageddon is really a staging point, and the, the Euphrates River is dried up in order that the forces from Babylon, I believe present-day Baghdad, right in that area, are going to come across, and they're going to attack uh, Jerusalem, where they're going to end up attacking Jerusalem, and the Lord at this point uh, defends Israel, defends the Jews, and comes to their rescue. And we see the Jewish people brought back to the Lord where they believe in the Messiah and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a gathering of the kings of the earth, and you can see that in this campaign. In verse 13 of chapter 16, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war, the great day of God, the Almighty. This is the war of God. I love how that's worded. This is God's war, folks. You know, what's interesting, and you're going to see this in chapter 17 as well, we have the false religious system, we have the false political system, we have the false economic system all consolidating underneath the Antichrist's power, and the unholy false trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, are all ruling over these types of systems, And God allows this in order to bring everything to a head so that he can deal with it, demolish it, and establish his rule and reign throughout the millennium from Jerusalem. When we talk about what's going on here, we're talking about the earth, all the kingdoms 
coming together against Israel, against God, and the Lord literally allowing this in order for his glory to be revealed. When we talk about where they're gathering, we saw that they're gathered at Armageddon, which is the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Megiddo. There are other names for it. But the campaign that is led by the Antichrist, the armies of Satan, begin to attack the Jews, begin to come against Jerusalem, even going down south, uh, potentially to Petra, where the 144,000, where many Jews had fled Jerusalem in order to be protected. We saw that earlier in Revelation. Well, the seventh bowl in verse 17 is poured out, and this is the last bowl. This is the last uh, bit of wrath, so to speak, and it is devastating. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. I always love with God's sovereignty, the fact of the matter is that the Lord is completely in control of these things. He allows these things, but he knows the end. And from the perspective of the heavenly host and from the perspective of God, even though these things are taking place or have not yet fully been uh, happened in the midst of human time, we recognize God is in control of it. And in, in his uh, eyes, it is finished. It is an it's a done deal. Think about that. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And in verse 19, we're told how this earthquake impacts planet earth. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. We begin to see what's going on here. We recognize that God is coming against evil. He's coming against unbelief. He's coming against the Antichrist and this unholy trinity led by Satan himself. In chapters 17 through 18, we have a deeper explanation of Babylon and the destruction of the systems that have been established against Christ Jesus as the true ruler of the earth this religious, political, economic systems that are used by the Antichrist in order to establish his power over the world. He's already formed a one-world government. We're going to look at this in a moment. It's probably the seventh head that is spoken of or the seventh mountain. And then at the middle of the tribulation, he moves on into a different arena in the sense that he literally takes control. And we see that the religious system is destroyed and he then begins to be the figurehead for that religious system. And in verses 1 through 6 in Revelation chapter 17, we begin to see the unfolding of this religious system, the exposure of how God views this religious system. In our day and age, folks, it's really fascinating because a lot of people want to talk about religion. And you ask people about the gospel, they don't have a clue what the gospel is. They don't even know how to define it. They don't understand that it means the good news. They don't understand that it's simply that Jesus Christ came to this earth, which is what Christmas is all about. They don't understand that it's about him going to the cross to shed his blood in order that we, when we believe in him, may have forgiveness of sins. They don't understand about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And that Christ, when we believe in him, will come to live within our lives. People don't understand that. It's shocking in our day and age. And folks, the difference between Christianity, true Christianity, 
and any other religion within this world is one word. Come on, what is it? It's grace. It's grace. See, we got to be so careful in the midst of when we look at something like this in, in chapter 17 and we see this religious system exposed. Understand that in every culture, in all time of history, the satanic effort has been what he has always been trying to do, which is to question the authenticity of God's word. Did God really say? God doesn't want you to be happy. God doesn't want you to, to rejoice. God wants you to be miserable. He wants to hold things back from you. And the truth of the matter is, God wants us to know him, which is the fullness of joy. Folks, the only way for that to take place is not by our effort, not by our works, not by what we can do, but rather by grace. It's undeserved. It's something that we can't pay for, and it's something we can't pay God back for. Where a lot of, and if I could put it this way, Baptists seem to get stuck, is at the point of justification. We agree that salvation is by grace through faith. In other words, when you become a believer, you were an unbeliever, and it's by grace that you become a believer. Where we seem to get stuck is we don't carry it forward. That it's by grace that I grow. It's by grace that I am encouraged. It's by grace that I learn. It's by grace that I walk. It's by grace that I follow. It's by grace. And in the midst of it all, we recognize that God's the one who gives us the strength and the power and the ability and the wisdom to do the very things that he's commanded us to do. It's by grace all the way through. For the unbeliever to become a believer, for the believer to grow and mature in Christ. It's by grace. The whole world's system is bent on redefining grace. And we can do that all kinds of different ways. We can do that by watering down grace from the perspective that somehow I've got to work or put effort into it. We can water down grace by saying there's nothing I can do, and therefore what we mean by that is there's no effort that's needed to be put out. Folks, both of those are wrong. Paul said, I worked harder than all the rest of them, but not I, the grace of Christ in me. There's work involved in the Christian life. As we yield to Christ, guess what? God's going to lead us. He didn't create us to be stagnant and sit back and act like there's nothing to do. He created us to follow him. That's what discipleship is all about. But it's by grace that we do so. It's not because of our own effort, because of our own ability, because of our own worth. It's because of who he is, period. Every system in the world is set up by Satan and polluted in order to take down one idea, and that is the grace of Christ. Folks, it is indescribable how we're watching that take place, even within our culture today. In the midst of this, when we talk about this harlot, when we talk about this woman, and this is a picture of a false religion, we're talking about the entire world being impacted by this desire 
to prove something that we saw at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, that there's something actually really good about us, that there's something that we actually have in order to offer ourselves to God to show and to prove that we are worth, that we are able to measure up to his righteous standard. And folks, that, that's antithetical to grace. Do we have worth? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus Christ went to the cross for us. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the ability to measure up to the righteous standard of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Only in Christ, who is our righteousness, is that able to take place. And that only happens by grace, period. Let me just pause there for You got a situation in your life you don't know how to deal with right now? You got something you're struggling with? You got a particular sin in your life that is just absolutely overwhelming you? How do you respond to it? Some people say, well, go take a class. Right? Or you got to go do this, this, and this, and you do it more, and you'll solve the problem. See, what we're talking about is the grace of Christ. We're talking about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about God himself living within us, strengthening us, empowering us to do something that we could never do on our own. And he understands that. We're the ones that have the problem with it because we always want to prove that we're better than what we really are. We love to hide. We love the facades, folks. We love it. We like to give impressions to people that deep down, if we're really honest about it, we know isn't really true. It's by grace. It's by grace. It's by grace. In the midst of everything, when God is at work within us, we have the opportunity to walk with him. And then what happens? God begins to be revealed through us. The love of Christ begins to flow through our lives and all the different characteristics of who he is and how we relate to people and how we relate to circumstances. All of a sudden, we see things in a very different way because they're filtered through the hands of God. And God himself begins to be revealed through us. And people begin to glorify not us. They begin to glorify God in us, which is what David was talking about, which is Emmanuel, which is why Christmas is such an amazing moment. Because God came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He became perfect, sinless humanity. And he entered into the very time that he created in order to go to the cross so that we could not only have our sin forgiven, but we could also now enjoy and partake of his life. And that, folks, is called grace. Grace not only helps me to be saved, grace transforms me. And in the midst of my life, I get to walk with him. Everything that we're looking at here is a direct result of a rebellious heart regarding the truth of God that we are in desperate need of him. Every religious system begins to set itself up against the knowledge of the Holy One and ultimately undermines the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and grace. Folks, we've got to guard that with every fiber in our being because that's what makes Christianity, true Christianity, unique. Well, in Revelation 17, 1 through 6, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came. And by the way, this is kind of like a highlighted moment. 
right? They've already said it is finished. Bowl's been poured out, and now it's like we get the microscope. All of a sudden, John is given a picture of something even more clearly than what has in its totality been revealed. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. This woman is said to be a great harlot who sits on many waters, speaking of the waters, speaking of humanity. And the kings or those in power have been immoral with her. They've participated with her in the immorality that she is doing. Humanity has also indulged in this as well. In verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Interesting, one commentary put it, we started out in the garden where everything was created good, and it was lush, and it was fruitful, and it was beautiful, and it was pure, and it was good, and now here we are at the very end where we're in the desert in a wilderness where the picture is given of a harlot of one who is immoral. And again, we're talking about a religious system that has pervaded all of humanity. Verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold. Makes it look real great on the outside, right? Precious stones and pearls. Having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Who or what is the harlot? You know, it's interesting. When you go back in the Old Testament, you go all the way back to the founding of Babylon, if you want to think of it that way. You start with Nimrod, who established Babel. You remember the Tower of Babel? And Babel has come to mean confusion of speech. Right, Because remember, they, they decided they were going to create a city, they were going to build a city that was going to reach up to heaven. And rather than doing what God had said, which is to go into all the earth and populate and multiply, they decided to all come together. And this is the beginning of Babylon. This is the beginning of man, in effect, shaking his fist at God, saying, we're going to do it our way, we don't need you, and we're going to do what we want to do. So starting with Nimrod, who established Babel, which literally means the gate of God. That's what Babel actually means. It ultimately became Babylon and then spread as a false religion and or false religions throughout the entire world. All the false truth in this world really has its origins right here in Babel, on into Babylon, on into the rest of the world. The seed of this has flourished in that man became, or that the idea that man can become God or work to achieve deity status, it's a defiance toward God as the true king, as the Lord. Babel's the origination of all these false religions. And I think when you look at the different things that have taken place, I'll never forget walking through Myanmar and seeing pictures of Dagon. Or we went to the pagoda, uh, one of the pagodas there, it was called the Shwedagon pagoda, and it didn't click with me. But Dagon is one of the uh, gods that the Philistines worshipped. I have no idea if there's a link there. That would be a fascinating study. 
But the fact that there, here's this Buddhist country that thinks that there's something they can do in order to get better, and if they don't quite get there, then when they die, they'll just get reincarnated until they finally achieve their status. Folks, this is anti-Christ. This is anti-God. This is anti-grace. It's everywhere. We have it all over our city. Everywhere. Everywhere. It's indescribable. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, the woman is the great harlot, but she's also the mother of harlots. The Babylonian system has, in one way or another, given birth to all false religions. She has also seduced men into opposing God and persecuting his servants. Drunk, drunk with the blood of the saints. Religions coming against the saints, the holy ones, the set-apart ones, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, the angel said to me, why do you wonder? Remember, it says, uh, verse 6, John was looking at this and he says, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel in verse 7 says, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. The abyss, the pit, speaking of Satan who empowers the Antichrist and the false prophet, the origins are satanic here. These religious systems are satanic, clearly. Those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. And again, we're talking about the rulership of the beast. We're talking about the rulership of Satan and his false trinity, the Antichrist, as well as the false prophet who causes everybody to worship the Antichrist or the beast. In verse 9, he goes on, the angel does, in explaining to John what he's looking at. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not, speaking of the satanically empowered Antichrist, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. In verse 12, he says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but they received authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And in a few weeks, we're going to see that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 19, when the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes back and deals with these armies that have set themselves up against himself. Those who would oppose him are going to be dealt with. Well, we're given several distinct descriptions within this particular passage. First of all, the harlot is sitting on a beast, and it is said that uh, the beast has seven heads, and the angel specifically states that the seven heads are seven mountains in verse 9, and then in verse 10 clarifies further that these seven heads, or the seven mountains, actually are seven kings, now, I would suggest to you, and there's many different ways to look at this. Some people want to look at this and say, well, this is Rome, and it's the actual city of Rome. Maybe. You can be wrong. It's okay. I be <laughs> It's all good. I'm just poking at some of y'all. I, I believe that these are seven kingdoms. 
And the reason for that is because specifically of what he has said. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. We're talking about kingdoms throughout history. We're talking about this religious system that is sitting on the kingdoms of the earth that have been immoral with her. And in the midst of it, we get this picture. It's like a history lesson that the angel is giving to John, and he ought to understand this because he knows the Old Testament. He's read Daniel. He's read the prophecies. He understands the kingdoms from the past. He understands the kingdoms that have been prophesied to come. A harlot is sitting on a beast who has seven heads. They are the seven mountains. And he clarifies further again in verse 10 that they are the seven kings. So five have fallen in verse 10. That's very clear. One is, meaning at the time John is given the revelation, there is one in power. The other is yet to come. And I believe this is the kingdom at the beginning of the tribulation that is being prophesied about. The beast because there's an eighth, is the eighth. The final kingdom that will be after the middle of the tribulation, a one-world government that Christ himself comes to conquer. And we see that in verse 11. We also see that in chapter 19. So the beast has ten horns, which we learn are ten kings who reign with the Antichrist for a short time. Now, are you confused yet? All right. Let's do this. We've got a seven, and then we've got an additional one, which is eight. We have five that have already passed, have fallen. We have one that is, and we have one to come. Now, in my book, that's five plus the one that is plus the one to come is how many? Seven plus the one to come after that is? Wow, this is good. We got this. So in the midst of this, the question is, what are the five? What's the one? What's the one that is to come, according to John? And what's the eighth? Fair question? Fair question. When we talk through this, let me just read what Wearsby has to say and some of these others, because I think they do a great job of explaining this. The five past kingdoms would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. You catch that? That's five, right? So they're past. They have already fallen. Egypt, Assyria. Babylon is where Daniel picked up, right? Because he's the golden head. But the prior uh, kingdoms to that are Egypt and Assyria. So you have five that have already fallen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and then Greece. The present kingdom would be Rome. And the future kingdom would be that of the beast, speaking of the kingdom that is formed as a one-world government leading in to the tribulation. That would be the seventh. So the question is, what is the eighth head or what is the eighth kingdom? And I believe that it is the kingdom that takes place after the abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation where the Antichrist, who has already been ruling, remember he says he's one of the seven, but he also becomes the eighth. He's already the world ruler in one sense. He made a covenant with Israel, and at the middle of the tribulation, he breaks that covenant with Israel, and therefore he takes power in a way that the seventh kingdom did not have, but the eighth kingdom becomes, because the eighth kingdom is all about him. 
The, the harlot, this woman, is actually destroyed by the kings of the earth. This religious system is literally taken over by the Antichrist so that he alone receives the worship from all of those on the earth. We have in the middle of the tribulation the 666 mark. We have the economic. We have the political systems all placed under the authority and the power of the Antichrist. And we have the religious system destroyed so that the Antichrist will take over and receive the worship. So you have five that have passed king, kingdoms from the uh, past. You have one that is, meaning the, the Roman Empire at the time of John. You have one that is coming, which is the restored Holy Roman Empire, where the, the uh, Antichrist is actually over that, leads it. It comes into the tribulation. Then you have the breaking of the covenant with Israel at the middle of uh, the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, where literally the Antichrist puts himself in the temple and sets himself up as whom? God. So then you have the eighth head, the eighth kingdom, going into the second part of the tribulation. <sighs> okay, do we got this? <laughs> I, I believe that that's accurate, folks. As much as I know and as much as I can get this accurate, I believe that's correct. Energized by Satan, assisted by the false prophet, the beast became the world's dictator and its God. His kingdom was nothing but revival of the Roman Empire, one of the seven. But it was a new kingdom after the middle of the tribulation, the eighth. Walvoord puts it this way, the final form of world government symbolized by the eighth beast itself is the world empire of the great tribulation time, meaning the second half of the tribulation. The revived Roman empire, which will be in sway immediately after the rapture of the church, is apparently indicated by the seventh head, while the beast, described in verse 11 as the eighth, is the world empire, which is destroyed by Jesus Christ at his second coming. And then he summarizes it this way. In summation, what is described in verses 8 through 11 is the final form of Gentile world power in alliance with apostate religion symbolized by the harlot. Folks, understand that Christmas is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is part of the plan that God has had from the very beginning when the fall took place in the Garden of Eden and the uh, evangelistic pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, this whole perspective of the fact that God's got this under control, that he's going to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to this earth, to go to the cross, to die so that provision for salvation for humanity can be accomplished. And when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. And through all of history, God has been absolutely planning. He's been prophesying, fulfilling those prophecies in order to bring his son to this earth to go to the cross, to rise again from the dead. And there's coming a day where he's going to come again and he's going to put away all this false religion, all this false political nonsense that would set itself up against the knowledge of the Holy One and in effect set itself up against God's rule. And as a result, he will rule and reign from Jerusalem on this earth for a thousand years. Folks, you can bank on that. You can count on that. That's what's going to happen. That has what's been happening, and God will accomplish it. Amen. Right? Let's go. <laughs> when we talk about the end of the woman, it's fascinating to me because in verse 15, he says, 
to John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. I mean, this is vivid descriptive language of a false religion that is going to be preyed upon by the very individuals that helped establish it, were corrupted through it and by it, and as a result are now going to take over so that the worship of the beast can take place. And God's allowed it all simply so that he can bring it into a consolidated effort to put it to an end. That's the issue. The ten horns begin to come against. They are the kings. They are part of the kingdom of the Antichrist. And in verse 17, God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. You catch this? (laughs) They think that they're trying to achieve their own kingdoms. And they're giving their kingdoms to the beast so that there's a one world government, the eighth head in the last part of the tribulation. And God is allowing this to bring about what? His purpose. His purpose. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Wow. I like But Warren Wiersbe says, Satan's counterfeit religion is subtle. It's subtle, requiring spiritual discernment to recognize. It was Paul's great concern that the local churches he founded not be seduced away from their sincere devotion to Christ. In every age, there is the tremendous pressure to conform to popular religion and to abandon the fundamentals of the faith. And folks, there is nothing new under the sun. We see it today in stark contrast to what was taught by the apostles to how we are to walk with the Lord. Paul put it this way. He said, I fear for you, lest you should be deceived by Satan from the simplicity which is in Christ Jesus. Think about that. What are we talking about as a body of believers? What are we, what are we here for? We're here to worship the Lord, to give him the credit that is truly deserving of him. We're here to walk with him in his power, in his strength, in his wisdom, by his what? Grace. That's it, folks. I don't care what area or arena of life you want to talk about. You can talk about it in the family. You can talk about it in your marriage. You can talk about it in parenting. You can talk about it at work. You can talk about it in your relationships with people, not only in the body, but outside the body. We are in need of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, walking with him, following him, yielding to him, surrendering to him, ultimately obeying him as God in us empowers us to do the very things that he has commanded of us. He doesn't leave us as orphans. He doesn't leave us alone. He comes to live within us and by his spirit, not by my might, not by my strength, not by my ability, not by my mind, not by my effort, but rather by simply yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ and recognizing the truth of the reality that it is by his grace that all of this takes place. It's how I am saved. It's how I walk with him in the midst of the salvation that he's provided for me, and I begin to grow in Christ. And one day, thank God, we look forward to heaven. That's by grace. It's not because of what we've done. When we talk about this age, 
Boy, there's so many things I could say about this. How are we being seduced? How are we being deceived? And even how we think about doing church. It is by the word of God, folks. Period. Because only God can grow anything. And do we trust him to do that or not? It is by yielding to Christ and recognizing the reality of his lordship in our lives and that he's come in order to empower us to walk with him by grace. When we talk about Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of our Lord. And this really is why we worship him, because of who he is. Not only because of what he's done, because of what he's doing, and because of what he's promised that he will do. Through his birth, we have a major fulfillment of scripture and prophecy. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. I mean, there's so many prophecies that Jesus Christ, just through his birth, fulfilled. It's remarkable. And then when he walked on this earth, all the prophecies that he fulfilled, you come away from this and you start looking at this, and if you're not convinced and persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. The reality of it is, is Jesus came to this earth to accomplish his mission of providing salvation for humanity. And it is not uh, by works that this salvation takes place. It is by faith. It is the persuasion that God comes to us and begins to, to reveal to us that we are in desperate need of him and what he has already accomplished on our behalf. And it is yielding to him and agreeing with him and then receiving from him the promise that he makes to us that if we believe in him, we will be saved. That's what Christmas is all about. All who believe in him are his. We've received forgiveness of sin and the salvation that he accomplished at the cross through the shedding of what? His blood. To be cleansed, to be forgiven. You know, the beauty of it is he's been established by the Father as having all rule and authority. He's the head of the church, but all things have been placed under his feet. Think about that. There's not one thing, not one thing. No principality, no dominion, no power, no ruler that can set itself up against the Lord God Almighty. He will bring about what he said he was going to accomplish. This harlot, this religious system that pervades and invades all of history and all of, all of time in terms of this setting itself up against the knowledge of the Holy One will be dealt with and taken out because it's false. He'll restore all things, the Lord will, into their proper order and he'll deal with sin and rebellion. Folks, what a hope we have in Jesus Christ. What a life we have in Christ. What an opportunity to celebrate. I love Christmas. I love the trees. I love the lights. I love, I love red. I love red. I just do, you know? I, I love the music of Christmas, the hope, the joy. But do we understand why? It's because he's the one true God. And he came to this earth in order to provide salvation. And that way, we can be forgiven. We can walk with him. We can receive him. We can enjoy him today and forever. And we know that he holds all things in his hands. That he'll deal with false religion. Folks, how are we growing in Christ? How are we being transformed from faith to faith, conformed to the very image of God? 
to where God in us is transforming us from the inside out so that who he really is begins to be revealed. Jesus truly is the reason for the season, and he truly is the greatest gift of God to humanity. There's no question about that. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 